Welcome back to the 11th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including there's a text-to-image AI app for Mac now, and it will change everything. A short history of fake history, why fighting for the truth is critical, and when the weed wagon comes to your state, ask them what they did in California. And of course, we'll close today's episode with the Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our first story. It comes from Fast Company. There is a new text-to-image art AI app for Mac now, and it will change everything. Impossibly realistic and creative art created by AI has been appearing more and more frequently over the past few months, and it used to be accessible only to a select few. Now, anyone can run a full graphical version of the text-to-image artificial intelligence stable diffusion on any Apple Silicon-based Mac with no technical knowledge whatsoever. You have to drop an app into your applications folder, double-click on it, write your prompt, and magic happens. It's called Diffusion B, and you can download it here. Until now, if you wanted to partake in the awesome wonder that is text-to-image AI, you only had two options. You could pay to use a service like MidJourney or Dolly, if you're lucky enough to get an invite, or get into the terminal to install Stable Diffusion, an open-source, free-to-use tool. While there are step-by-step guides to install all required components, they often miss little things that make it an exercise of frustration to use us mere mortals. And they're not wrong. I downloaded B Diffusion. I wanted to try to change something so that I could get uh, train it better. And goodness gracious, trying to get into the code and go into the terminal on Mac was an absolute pain in the butt. So I'm going to stick with the, the bare minimum on B-Diffusion. And right now, the plan is to use B-Diffusion to create the thumbnail for this podcast. So if you see the title, which I'm imagining will be something, oh, AI created this thumbnail, that's what you'll be looking at. You'll be looking at B-Diffusion. I tested it out this morning. It's, it's okay. It's not the best thing in the world and it has a hard time with complex ideas, but it's better than what I could do. So I'm impressed, honestly. All right, back to the article. All that has ended thanks to Devon Gupta, an AI research engineer at Meta. Now anyone with an Apple Silicon machine can enjoy the power of stable fusion, easier than installing Adobe Photoshop. A simple drag and drop is all that's required, instead of having to sign up for Adobe or any other service. It has no fees, and it doesn't require connection to the Internet beyond the initial download of the models needed to make it work. There's no info uploaded to the cloud. It runs on any Mac with an M1 or M2 processor, taking advantage of the massive processing muscle built into these nimble chips. The developers recommend 16 gigabytes of RAM because machine learning is very memory intensive. But I have run it on a MacBook Air M1 with 8 gigabytes of RAM without a single glitch. It took about 5 to 6 minutes to get it. It is a remarkable albeit expected, development that will for sure cause an explosion of new images and creativity with consequences that, realistically, we can't yet foresee. 
while many illustrators have lambasted these image-to-text tools most of the time out of fear of losing their jobs, there's another side to this debate, a growing feeling that this kind of software will be just another tool in the arsenal of creatives worldwide. A couple of weeks ago, video artist and director Paul Trillo told me that he believed this tool, quote, isn't going to be taking any jobs from any visual creators, end quote. If anything, he anticipates, quote, it's going to create efficiencies to work that they're already doing. It will open the door to entirely new kinds of techniques, as well as allow for low-budget projects to be photorealistic VFX, end quote. UK-based art director and ARXR 3D artist Josephine Miller echoed these feelings, telling me that the technology has enabled her to do more things. Quote, sometimes... I feed my designs into Dolly, which produces variations of it, she describes. Quote, and when I discover something unexpected that I didn't think about, which takes me into a new creative direction. Miller, who's been working with a team of artists and developers on an AR filter that will allow Instagram users to see expanded paintings, also says that she has used it to present variations of her works to clients. Quote, I tell them, this is my design. But these others were created by an AI for you to see, Miller says. Quote, sometimes they find something they like in the variation that is incorporated into the final design. Manuel, quote, Manuvision, Sincili, an artist and XR director at Unity, also believes that these tools are extremely powerful for creative people. They are also inevitable, he tells me. And they often open a path for imaginative people to, with no visual execution skills, to create something visual. Quote, it can empower people who have no power, he says. Miller agrees, pointing out a very particular case in which disabled kids were, all of a sudden, just using their words, able to create images using Dolly, while they weren't able to do it before because they just couldn't draw. Quote, it was rather magical, she says. Sincilly believes that this technology will lead to a renaissance, much like we have experienced before with other technical revolutions, like digital photo editing, desktop publishing, or photography. We have been remixing for centuries. This AI technology just makes the process faster. And yes, that will bring a lot of change to the industry, but as with other revolutions it will also offer incredible opportunities. Regardless of your views on having a tool like Stable Diffusion readily available as a one-click app, the fact is this creative movement is inevitable. While there will be laws and lawsuits trying to curb the use of sampling, as has happened with music, it's going to become increasingly difficult to enforce any control. Even less so when you consider that right now, visual artists process bits and pieces of other people's work to create everything, from storyboards to full artwork, using Photoshop and other tools, without crediting the original samples. It's hard to blame AI for reusing other people's work when the practice is already common across many visual industries. Quote, people already mix regularly to create new things. AI just makes it faster, End quote, Sincilly points out. At the end, it feels like any regulation will fall flat based on the current industry practices and the very nature of AI tools. And it's only going to get more sophisticated with time. 
eventually becoming truly synthetic and erasing any trace of the original work. We may as well download this early version of the technology and start working with it so we can have an advantage. And like I said, I downloaded it. I've been toying with it a little bit. It's a very interesting tool. It's not comprehensive by any means. It's not going to spit out all the Mona Lisa or any artwork that is absolutely phenomenal. But it's a step in the right direction. And the more people that use it, give it more training data so it can only get better. So if you're interested, uh, the link to this article will be down in the description below the like and subscribe button, like always. And you can go in and use the link and download it. All right. Our next story is a story that comes from the Washington Examiner. When the weed wagon comes to your state, ask them what they did to California. Since the marijuana legalization era began in 2012, the federal government has operated under an unwritten understanding that it would not enforce marijuana laws in states where the drug is legal. So how is that working out? The LA Times looked for answers in rural California and published the results in a new, month ser- a new series this month. California legalized the recreational use of marijuana by referendum in 2016. Proponents promised that a taxable and orderly marijuana trade would be the result and a clear improvement over the violent black market trade that had preceded the legislation. They promised that the legal marijuana trade would squeeze the illegal trade out of business. The exact opposite is now happening. In short, the consequences of federal non-enforcement and reduced state penalties for marijuana offenses are not pretty. The emergence of a regulated marijuana trade has not reduced crime in California. Rather, it has spread crime into the rural areas and turned local politics across the state into a morass of corruption. Local politicians now take and demand huge bribes in exchange for growing licenses and legislative support for expanding the industry, according to one source quoted by the LA Times. Bribe requests are typically in a low six figures. Federal law enforcement authorities have, at the least, been somewhat involved in running sting operations and prosecuting corrupt officials. But for every rock they turn over, there have been dozens they missed. I don't necessarily like that they don't give us a direct quote here, or they don't even give us a hyperlink to the LA Times article to verify this information that these politicians are getting bribes. Then again... I wouldn't be surprised, considering the state of our nation, money is king. It speaks volumes. And if certain people aren't able to have a legal business and they want to get away with certain things, then they'll probably throw some money the way of the politicians and the police officers to look the other way. But it's a huge accusation to say that they are outright being bribed without Uh, direct evidence and I'm not saying it it doesn't exist but if they don't quote it here it makes me very skeptical and I know the examiner has a very particular slant so keep that in mind if you're reading this or you see things like this in the future let's get back to the article and that's just the legal trade given the relative absence of federal drug enforcement and reduced state crime penalties as a result of proposition 64 Illegal and completely unregulated marijuana growing operations have sprung up across California. 
Heavily armed camps filled with violent armed men, often tied to cartels, now dot the countryside. The neighbors are far too scared to ask questions or even go out into the reaches of their own land as these neighboring growers brutally exploit their low-level workers. Local police find themselves completely overwhelmed, unable to enforce state law except in small fraction cases. In many police forces, officers face or fear retaliation against themselves and their families if they do or even say anything about illegal marijuana growers. Even when police do conduct raids against illegal grows, the kingpins behind these operations, at worst, are mildly inconvenienced. Low-level workers are the ones swept up, and typically, the growing operation is resumed within days. The greatest irony is that the illegal trade is becoming so massive and moving so far outside the reach of law enforcement that the legal trade is now threatened by a bumper crop and plummeting cannabis prices. The reduced criminal penalties for serious marijuana offenses, as the LA Times puts it, has, quote, lowered the cost of business for black market growers. People need to be warned about what the marijuana legalization craze has done to California. When the weed wagon reaches your state, filled with false hopes and dubious promises of smoking one's way to prosperity, don't forget the experience of a state that has already struggled under the burdens of energy shortages, rising crime, a fleeing population, and seeking safer and saner places to live. And that last quote, you can really see their bias coming through. Doesn't mean they're wrong, but you can see their bias coming through. And this was a big question that I always had when legalization was first happening. I was wondering what effect would this have on the illegal trade? And this was years ago. Um, and I was a big advocate for legalization then, and I, I still am to some degree. There are great medical uses for it, but we've been seeing this evidence that making it a legal industry and decriminalizing it, both of those don't necessarily have to go together, and they create these economic opportunities for cartel bosses or even small local groups that may operate in your area that want to sell marijuana illegally. They give them the opportunity to come in and plant their own products. They may be getting seeds from the legal industry and then going out and planting their own crops and then selling those products back to the people. And these kind of local grow operations, in this case, they mentioned a few cartel grow operations, which I, I need to see some data on that because that sound, that's a big accusation. Uh, when these opportunities open up, of course they're going to take advantage. They see a market and they're trying to capitalize on it. And with reduced pen penalties criminally, they're less hesitant. So we basically need to take the approach that we need to make a higher barrier to entry. We need to make the risk tolerance for these people higher. So if you're caught selling a or growing a crop illegally over a certain size, then the fines or penalties, jail time, need to go up. So then this will, one, encourage people to not go into that illegal trade in the first place, or at least it will make them hesitate. And then also, they can't undercut the prices anymore because there's more risk involved, so they're going to have to raise their prices. That can't undercut the legal industry anymore. And I feel like that's a good hybrid solution that still allows the legalization and allows these industries to thrive, while also addressing the criminals and the bad actors who are trying to take advantage of looser policies in states like California.
All right, so now we can move on from weed. Some people, that's not their style. And we can move on to a story from Saloon. A short history of fake history. Why fighting for truth is crucial. It is often said that history is a story told by the winners. It might be more accurate to say that those who tell their story as history and getting others to believe it, thereby make themselves the winners. That happened on a grand scale in the United States from the late 19th century into the 1960s. The fact is essential for us to understand as right-wing extremists again seek to dictate the fraudulent version of American past to be taught in schools. Within a few decades after the Civil War, it came to be the loser stories of a, quote, land of cavaliers and cotton fields, end quote, midnights and magnolias, kindly masters and happy slaves, a glorious, quote, lost cause in a horrible period of, quote, black reconstruction, end quote, that were widely accepted as accurate history. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the nation was reunited on the basis of a tactic armistice, in which the South accepted the Union as indissolvable, and white Americans outside the South accepted the Southern doctrine that people of African ancestry were innately inferior. That acceptance was facilitated by the popularity of pseudoscience, of social Darwinism, and a fabricated story that Reconstruction had been a monstrous time of rule of ignorant black people, rather than the largely successful period of progressive and democratic reform that it actually was. I do take issue with their statement here that people uh, outside, white people outside the South, accepted the Southern doctrine that people of African ancestry were innately inferior. Though there are probably people that did. I mean, we can't say that's not true 100% for every single person, a lot of black people after the Civil War and after Reconstruction failed because the government was trying to get too involved in reconstructing some of these southern states moved north to where there are more industrial jobs. They may have still faced discrimination. I'm not discounting that. But they moved north because there are more jobs there and they were seen as actual people and they could be actual benefits to society rather than just being, oh, former slaves who are looked down upon in the South. So this idea that everybody across America all of a sudden was like, you know what? No, no. After the Civil War, we give up our preconceptions that people should be free because that's why a lot of people in the North were fighting. They were fighting to keep the South from succeeding, but a lot were also fighting against racism. We had the women's suffrage movement as well as the abol uh, abolishment movement growing in the North. So to say that everybody just suddenly accepted, oh, no, no, they're actually inferior, that's fine. That's the bargain for the South coming back to be part of the Union. Is It's very, it's twisting the facts, but it's okay. We're going to keep going. There's more things I can point out here. And it does have some good insights, so don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to come down too hard. This inverted history had an enormous impact on the lives of at least three generations of Americans that, though diminished, continued down to the present. The most consequential telling of it is found in D.W. Griffith's 1915 film, quote, Birth of a Nation, end quote, a landmark work both of cinema and white supremacist propaganda. The movie represents enslavers as benevolent caretakers for the lower life form. Enslaved people were shown singing and dancing during the two-hour interval given for dinner, end quote. 
Reconstruction is painted as a time in which, quote, the natural order, end quote, of white superiority was turned upside down. Griffith presents a frightening picture of, quote, crazed Negroes, end quote, with the necessary restraint of slavery removed, making, quote, helpless whites their victims, end quote. One of the title cards in the silent movie depicts the restoring of white man's rule as a glorious event and describes it as, quote, the former enemies of North and South are united again in common difference with their Aryan birthright, end quote. And this is the sad fact where we saw a, ra- a wave of racism in the early 20th century, and not just against blacks, against Jews as well. I mean, if you look at Henry Ford, some of his most prolific writings were used and quoted by Adolf Hitler <laughs> in some of his speeches because there was this resurgent idea that the other was bad. So I'm not trying to dismiss the racism of our past, but everything needs to be put into more context. Not every single person in America was racist. Not every single person in America was righteous. There was lots of division, and there was a lot of struggle during that time. Thank God we've moved past that into the Civil Rights era, which we're just about to talk about here in this article. But painting it as one or the other, which is this is exactly how it was, we were all this way, versus basically putting us into categories, saying all the white people were bad during that time, all the black people were victims, and they were just uh, trying to get through a terrible time. There were prolific writers during the Harlem Renaissance who were talking about the black experience in America and were fighting back against the system and didn't perceive themselves as uh, victims. Think of Zora Neale Hurston in her book, Moses, Man of the Mountain. This is her, her big theory, claim, kind of illustrating the modern mentality during the Harlem Renaissance and comparing it to Moses. The people that came out of Egypt in the original story of Moses, they looked to Moses and God to solve their problems. They were not used to being free, and they had a victim mentality that we can't do anything for ourselves. The Egyptians have kept us down so long. Zora Neale Hurston points this out, and she says, we can't fall into the same track. We have to be trapped. We have to be empowered. We have to make our own decisions and make our own way now that we're in this new era of freedom in the United States. So painting one side is one thing and one side is the other thing is not going to get you anywhere. And it's just another version of revisionist history that they're accusing certain people to nowadays of doing. The view that Reconstruction was a period of terrifying, quote, black domination and restoration, the rightful reaffirmation of the United States as a, quote, white man's country, end quote, was prevalent throughout the nation from the 1890s into the early 1960s, pushed by followers of early 20th century Columbia University historian William Dunning. This interpretation was routinely taught in schools. It was also reflected in popular culture, notably in Margaret Mitchell's hugely successful 1936 novel, Gone with the Wind, and its 1939 film adaptation. The 1950s, the time when Republicans say today that America was, quote, great, lasted well into the 1960s. Though it is often referred to as a, quote, age of innocence, In fact, it was an age of ignorance of guilt. Restoring that ignorance is a major component of authoritarians' plans to, quote, take America back. 
note the use of the word authoritarian's plans here. Uh, they never really go into detail who they're talking about specifically. They say right-wing extremist, but they don't define that. So they're kind of painting a really broad brush here, which can be dangerous. So just keep that in mind as we're going through. Quote, In 1964, songwriter and folk singer Tom Paxson recorded, quote, What did you learn in school today? End quote. It is a biting satirical attack on the misinformation that was still being taught about America's past. The son in the song responds to his father's questions by saying he learned that everyone in America is free. That's true. Our country is always right and just. Obviously, that's wrong. We are not always right and just. We've done some terrible things, including coups, so on and so forth. The police are always our friends. That is false. They're not always our friends. If you are committing a crime, a police officer is not your friend, and they should not be perceived that way. The wars America fights are always good and so on, which is an interesting perspective that they seem to have back then. And that's also when we actually came out of wars on the right side, or at least the perceived right side, because we won. Ever since we started losing wars, that has caused the populace to kind of question, maybe, maybe we're not always on the right side here. Maybe we're not righteous. Maybe it's not in the grand plan for us to win. So that's an interesting shift in the zeitgeist. Sorry, back to the article. Paxson's lyrics, again, seem tailor-made for the guilt-free mythology that Republicans today are seeking to impose on school curricula while calling it history. It was in 1964 that the dam holding back the truth about the American past cracked. Quote, a shadow stretched across our history for hundreds of years, end quote, read a New York Times book review headline on September 13, 1964. That shadow, cast by the acceptance of the loser's false history, which continued its pernicious effects through the Jim Crow era of segregation, was finally being lifted. Newer scholarship and some older but largely ignored works, notably W.E.B. Du Bois's 1936, quote, Black Reconstruction in America, that presented a different view of Reconstruction, was brought into the wider public attention. And this is 100% accurate. Um, as I grew up, I remember reading multiple uh, excerpts from W.E.B. Du Bois's works. So we've seen this shift, and that's why I think this article is a little off base, because they talk about Republicans trying to go back to the pre-1950s, and I think we've moved past that as a culture. We can look back and say we did awful things during the Civil War. We did awful things before that, enslaving people. And we can acknowledge that without having to take on guilt for the actions of our past ancestors. So I think that's the hybrid we were at after the 1960s, and especially in the early 2000s when we read stories from W.E.D. Du Bois, from Malcolm X, uh, from Martin Luther King Jr., as well as from Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. All these different stories and perspectives made it into our culture, made it into our schooling system, and they've been present for a long time now. So this idea that Republicans are trying to take us back to a guilt-free mythology in how we teach at schools is very interesting. And they try to bring up a specific reference here in a little bit about a law that was passed in Texas, and we'll break that down when we get to it. 
even more important in overturning the whitewashed history that was held sway for so long was the impact of the civil rights movement in awakening many Americans, particularly the young. To that fact, they had been spoon-fed a distorted version of the nation's past. Particularly significant in that regard were the Freedom Schools set up during the 1964 Mississippi Freedom School Summer Project. Quote, education in Mississippi is an institution which must be reconstructed from the bottom up, end quote, said Charles Cobb, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee Field Secretary who pushed the idea of Freedom Schools. The prospectus was sent to the volunteers who would teach in the school. Quote, notes on teaching in Mississippi, end quote, explained that black students, quote, have been denied free expression and free thought. Most of all, they've been denied the right to ask questions, end quote. Students were encouraged to bring their own experiences into the institution and the practices of Mississippi into the discussion. Among the innovations of the Freedom Schools was teaching of African-American history. It was a revelation to many of the students that people like them had a history. The rise of black history, as well as other areas of ethnic history and women's history, as the 1960s blossomed, was in part the result of what began in Mississippi Freedom Schools in the summer of 1964. Today's right-wing extremists seek to, quote, take back America in two senses, back from those who were not white or not male, and back to the time when straight white males were in charge. An essential part of their overall quest to effect a second, quote, restoration of white man's rule is an attempt to restore the ignorance of American history that prevailed before 1964. States under right-wing control have been passing laws restricting what may be taught in their schools, especially about racism. The Republican-controlled Texas state legislator enacted a law in 2021 specifying what should and should not be taught to students about their nations and states' past. Excluded, and listen here very carefully, excluded were the 15th Amendment, which prohibits the federal government and states from denying and abridging the right to vote, quote, on the account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. What is also excluded is the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the history of Native Americans, and documents on the separation of church and state, and the women's chinko and labor movements. Existing standards for teaching about the ways in which white supremacy, slavery, eugenics, and the Ku Klux Klan are, quote, morally wrong, were removed. This law is unmistakably a formula, again, making Texas, where a non-Hispanic white population is already a minority, what it was before the 1964 reforms, a, quote, white man's state. Okay, so what we need to break down there is it excludes the 15th Amendment, Voting Rights Acts, talk about labor's movements and women's movements, and it doesn't have to say anymore that white supremacy, slavery, eugenics, the Ku Klux Klan, and things of that nature are morally wrong. So if you go to the hyperlink they provide, they're talking specifically here about a bill in Texas, House Bill 3979. And you can look this up for yourself. I did some outside research. And the first two, uh, H1 and H3, both talk about how private funding cannot go to schools 
from outside sources, which is restrictions on like lobbying groups, basically lobbying for certain materials to be put in, which I feel is fair. Where they talk about restrictions is H2. And I'm going to read this to you. So H2, subsection 6, where they actually talk about restrictions. No teacher, administrator, other employee at a state agency, school district, campus, open enrolled charter school, or school administration shall be required to make part of the course the following concepts. One, race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. Two, an individual, by the virtue of his or her race or sex, is inherently racist, sexist, oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Three, an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of his or her race or sex. Four, members of one race or sex cannot and should not attempt to treat others without respect or uh, to their race or sex. Five, an individual's moral character is not necessarily determined by his or her race or sex. Six, an individual, by virtue of his race, his or her race or sex, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. Seven, any individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex. Or eight, meritocracy or traits such as hard work ethic are racist or sexist or were created by members of a particular race to oppress members of another race. Now, does that sound... I'm asking genuinely here. Does that sound anything like they what they just said was in this bill? Does it sound on base at all? Because I didn't see anywhere where it says they can't teach the 15th Amendment. I didn't see anywhere where it says they can't teach 1965 Voting Rights Acts. I didn't see anything where it talks about that they can't have the church or, uh, separation of church and state. And where does it say that the white supremacy, the Ku Klux Klan, eugenics, and slavery cannot be mentioned as morally wrong. That's not even close to what they said. What they're saying is you cannot be categorized by race, sex, or anything of that nature and then be told to feel a certain way about it, to be discriminated against because of it, or told that you have historically, your people have oppressed somebody else, so you have to pay for it now by being guilty, or that reverse racism or so-called nowadays the buzz term is anti-racism, that that is the solution to past racism. Where I don't, there's a misconnect here, and I feel like they are purposefully just pulling out the information that they want to and then twisting it. And though I agree that we America for a long time misrepresented its history and made it look better than it actually was, that changed and is still changing. But this is a negligent and willful misrepresentation of what the bill says. And I find it very disingenuous. And that's why I'm extremely heated. And this is also why I left this till the end, because I knew I would probably be ranting for a good amount of this article. But let's get back to it. It's almost done. At its state convention in June of this year, the Texas Republican Party adopted a platform requiring that lies be taught as history and insisting that the traitors who led the Enslavers Rebellion, a.k.a. the Civil War, be venerated, not to be outdone by the Orwellian project of reconstructing the past to promote nefarious objectives in the present. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had the State Department of Education hold training sessions for teachers this summer as part of a civics 
Excellence Program. Teachers who attended reported that they were instructed to teach students that American slavery really wasn't that bad and that the founders didn't want the separation of church and state, that the United States was founded as a Christian nation and other flat-out lies. So, yes, I agree here that the separation of church and state was most definitely the intent of the founders. Though the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence do talk about uh, rights endowed to us by a creator, that doesn't necessarily say God, and it is meant to be more of a artistic statement that there's something larger than us and that people have rights naturally. I'm not trying to, I don't think they were trying to say that God specifically gave it to us. Now, is our ethics system completely built out of Christian ideals? Yes, a thousand percent. And you can't deny that. That's the legacy of Western history altogether. Christianity, religious values, the virtues that they instill, they are deeply deeply installed in the Western way of thinking, and you cannot eliminate them. And then also talking here about the teachers who attended reported that they were instructed to teach students that the American slavery really wasn't that bad. Now, do they have an exact quote from the training session that someone's saying that? Or are they saying that maybe it shouldn't be highlighted in a certain way, and these teachers have a political slant, so they disagree? Just keep that in mind. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying if someone has a political ideology and they're told that they don't need to overplay something or teach it the way they've been teaching it because they want to put emphasis on certain stories in America, they could say, well, actually, that, that's downplaying it a little bit. So it all matters on perspective here, matters on bias. Back to the article. Mississippi racists in 1964 feared that knowing the truth would set people free. Across red state America in 2022, zealous right-wingers who share that fear are conducting search-and-destroy missions against books and teachers that dare to tell the truth about the nation's past. At the Freedom School in Canton, Mississippi, a small city just north of Jackson, an incident in July 1964 perfectly symbolized the views and purposes of opponents of truth and freedom, both then and now, which I think is a false equivalency but we'll keep going. Local white people broke into the building housing the school and its small library collection and urinated on the books. Freedom schools were the antidote to unfree schools in 1964. In 2022, making schools in history unfree is intended to reinstate the ignorance of the past that prevailed six decades ago. In a July story in the Washington Post on directives to schools and teachers in Florida, to take all books on a list of those in noncompliance with state laws and hide them in a classroom closet or elsewhere where students couldn't see them. That's a step above urinating on books, but is still outrageous. Some of the books on the no-read list were about LGBTQ plus people. Ordering them to be put, quote, back in the closet speaks volumes about where red state suppression of truth and free inquiry is going. There is much about the history of the United States in which we can rightly take pride, but to pretend that there are no dark and difficult truths in our past constitutes a big lie that serves the interests only of those who want to destroy the American experiment. Among the reasons why the times, they are a-changing, in 1964, and, quote, the losers now will be later to win, end quote, as Bob Dylan said in a song released that January, 
was the displacement of a whitewashed version of American past with a more truthful one. The authoritarians who seek to undermine democracy and freedom today understand that their success depends not only on disseminating fake news, but also saying, sowing fake olds. The rest of us must understand that, too. Yeah, well, if you think about it, the 1619 Project was completely, completely created to have a uh, revisionist vision of history, and it was meant to be disseminated to the people, and that was propagated by people on the left. So that exact same idea of changing the perspective through which we see history, changing the lens that we see it through, can be said to be promoted by people on the right and the left. And if they just inherently disagree, then of course they're going to come at each other and say it's revisionist history. So I think we need to be very delicate when approaching these sort of issues because educating our children and the next generation, the next leaders of America is crucial. And we need to highlight our mistakes so we don't make them again. But we also don't need to make them the central issue when teaching them. Because there's more to America than just our faults. There's the beautiful things. We've always strived to ensure that everybody in this country can have the same rights. And it may have taken hundreds of years to get there through slavery and then enacting different amendments, voting rights acts, the civil rights movement. But the story of America is moving past our our sins, basically, our, our previous mistakes and striving to be better. And if we focus too heavily on the past, we're never going to get out of that mindset. And we can't go forward if we're highlighting the past and staying in it. And that's why we have to be very delicate when addressing these issues. And I think there's been a good mix. Like I said, when I was growing up, we were told America did some really cruddy things. It did some things that were absolutely monstrous and that part of the economy in the south and other northern industries were built on slave labor but over time we moved past that we became better we had unions we freed slaves and we were taught all of this as a progression towards the goal of america the american dream in a more large-scale sense rather than an individual sense that all its citizens will be free and treated equally under the law but that's enough ranting for me on that one. That's enough negative stuff. Let's get to our daily delight. It's a story that's coming out of England. A cat, fox, and deer hang out in a woman's yard and make friends with each other. I wish people nowadays in America could do this. You know, Left, right, center, just come together and talk about things and be friends rather than having to always have divisive issues. It's always neat to see wild animals so coexisting in peace, and it's even neater to see them become friends. A woman living in Essex in the United Kingdom regularly has animals come to her house, and they often end up making friends with each other. The woman managed to capture a video of some of the animals hanging out in her yard together, and it seems that they made friends with each other. According to Viral Hog, she said, quote, Animals seem to always come to my house. None of the animals seem to be frightened by each other. My friends have started to call me Snow White, as animals seem to want to come to me. The video shows a fox, several deer, and a cat hanging out together. Like the woman said, they don't seem frightened by one another and appear to be perfectly happy with each other's company. People in the comments agreed with her nickname of Snow White. One person commented, 
this is like a Disney movie happening in someone's backyard. Another added, is this Snow White's co- uh, cottage? Lol, so sweet. So, yeah, they have a video linked here, and if you want to see it, like I mentioned before, all these articles will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. And with that said, only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.